This is Conversations on the Arts. I'm Mary Krieger. Our conversation today is with Marcy Begleiter, director of the documentary film Eva Hesse, which she co-produced with Karen Shapiro, and which makes its theatrical debut at New York's Film Forum on April 27th. Eva Hesse, the documentary, is distributed by Zeitgeist Films. Marcy Begleiter has been engaged with researching and writing about Eva Hesse for a number of years, including authoring the play Meditations Eva Hesse, which was produced by Highway Performance Space in Santa Monica in 2010. She also directed the short film Eva Hesse, Walking the Edge on Commission for the Hamburger Kunsthalle for the Retrospective of the Artist in 2014. Her book, From Word to Image, Storyboarding and the Filmmaking Process, is a bestseller. As a designer and production illustrator, she has worked with Bill Condon, Jennifer Warren, Alex Kotz, Paul Bogart, and Jonathan Wax. Previously, she was director of design and pre-visualization for graduate film at Art Center College of Design and was the founding director of the Integrated Learning Program at Otis College of Art. Eva Hesse is her first feature documentary film. Thank you for doing this interview. Thank you for inviting me. So tell me, what brought you to Eva Hesse? How did you become aware of her work? What, what made you decide to do a film about her? Well, they're kind of, it's a process that sort of happened through the years. When I became aware of her work was really through reproductions in art books when I was in graduate school. And the Lucy Lepard book, Eva Hesse, which she wrote, which she published in 1976, included not only her personal recollections of the artist, but also quotations from Hesse's unpublished journals. When I read that book, wanting to know about the artist behind these fascinating artworks that I was seeing, I really became sort of engaged in a deeper type of research and wrote a grant. I heard through a friend of mine who was a librarian that these unpublished journals were housed in a small museum in Oberlin, Ohio, the Allen Art Museum yes. at, at Oberlin, Allen Memorial Art Museum. How did they get there, actually? Well, that's another story. <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can certainly go there because there's a remarkable woman behind that, two, two women, really. There is Ellen Hulda Johnson, who was an art historian who back in the 60s, and then for really a couple of decades after, was at Oberlin running a program and teaching. And she really knew what was going on in New York in the 60s. She made many trips to New York, befriended a lot of the contemporary artists, not only Eva Hesse, um, but people like Oldenburg, and invited them out. So in 19, before Hesse got sick, in 1960, I think it was late 68 or early 69, Ellen invited Eva to come and do a short workshop at Oberlin, work with the students, and Eva also brought along a big packet of her drawings. Mm -hmm. So there was a, a show of Hesse drawings at Oberlin in the late 60s. Just, you know, kind of a spur of the moment, she had them with him, they put them up, and as many people did, the students you know, loved working with her. And she and Ellen, again, had this great relationship. She only spent a couple of days out there, but they stayed in touch. And after Hesse's early death, 
um, there was an enormous amount of material that was left behind, not only paintings and sculptures, but a tremendous amount of work on paper, drawings and, ske- and, and uh, you know, sketches in journals, and the journals themselves, the, and diaries and postcards. So where does all this go? Right. Helen has a cherish, even right. sister, right. is the head of the estate and has been, you know, from the get-go. And with the gallerist who she was working with at that point, Donald Droll, they made a relation, uh, uh, an agreement with Oberlin to house all of this material. And in 1977, there was a very large donation. Uh, to the to that museum, to the Oberlin Museum, and then there was another of, of the archive, of the letters, of the arch- of, of letters, the letters, the journals, the sketches. Also, Oberlin, I should say this: that that museum was one of the first institutions to collect Hesse. Before she died, they bought a major sculpture um, called, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, Laokun. Um, which is one of the her... Akuan, I think, is, is the uh, isn't, you... it the, isn't it the uh, Greek? Yes. Uh, how do you how do you pronounce it? I think it's Loakuan. I, I think Loakuan. Okay, I yeah. knew I know I pronounced it incorrectly. <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't know if I'm sculpture. pronouncing it correctly, but yeah. It was the, a major sculpture that she. It's did. a Greek uh, myth. Yes, yeah. and it's connected from connected to the ceiling, so it's really not only it's one of the first installation pieces, and that dates from 1966. So that's really early for installation work. And they bought it. So they not only have the donation, they all also committed to the artist um, in her lifetime, as did the Whitney. Um, in a, in a, you know, they showed so m- much of her work went to museums. It, I mean, not, not all of it, obviously. They have, it seems well, that's, like Housing again, Worth is, is representing her now, right? Now, yes. But that's, you know, Housing Worth is currently representing her, but, you know, there's sort of this, this history, the legacy. Um, there were a number of different galleries that have represented the estate. How she ended up in these museums is a, sort of another story. Um, in the film, uh, we have an interview with Tony Gans, who is the son of Victor and Sally Gans, right. major collectors. Right. And they also knew Eva and collected Hesse work during her lifetime. And when... Uh, Eva passed, Victor Gans worked with the estate and purchased, I think it was 10, maybe 12 major sculptures with the understanding and the promise that they would be, uh, that they would end up in big museum, major museum collections around the world. So that's why the Pompidou has seven poles. And that's, you know, and then you have uh, the Tate has addendum. And I can go on and on, uh, you know, where... So these major sculptures are all, you know, in major collections all over the world. And partly because of uh, of, of uh, his engagement, that family's engagement. And the sister is unbelievable. I mean, Kate she, Gans. No, the sister oh, of, okay. of, of Eva Hesse. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure the sister of Gans is in great too. But yes, yeah. yes. But uh, this, the, uh, the sister kept everything. Right? I mean, I mean even your film... She has been an extraordinary steward. I mean, in your film, you show her work from... Co- is that work from, from college? Her artwork from college? And yes. All, all the way through to the end of her life. The material that the Hesse family... And, and there is a, 
a history going back to Eva and Helen's father. He was an attorney, a lawyer in Hamburg uh, in the 19, I guess, late 20s, early 30s, before he lost, of course, his ability to practice law in 1933 um, with, the, um, uh, with the Nazis being in power and taking all of that, the ability for professional Jews to practice. But he was not only a lawyer, he was uh, a really talented photographer. He, he was someone who practiced journaling. Mm -hmm. in, in Germany, they call it Tagebücher, or mm. Tagebücher. So these are day books. So Eva grew up watching her father create incredible, these, these very, very detailed diaries about the family, about each child, you know, what they did, how they grew. Um, these journals are in the, um, the collection of the Leo Beck Institute in New York, mm. and they have all been translated. Studies, right? Yes, it's, a, it's, a, it's an institute of uh, mostly focusing on German Jews, the lives, the culture of German Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. And again, Helen, uh, Eva's sister, donated uh, these, his journals to that institute so they could be available for uh, scholars and to the public. They're actually on, you can actually read them online. They have a, a finder. Nice. So, and it's not just writing. He cut things out of the newspaper and he has photos of the kids in there. And he kept, I mean, they're, they're wonderful examples of this kind of um, sort of multimedia analog journaling that, you know, I think, People would, you know, we have them, we have uh, examples of them in the film. But this is, this is the world, this is the family that Eve and Helen were born into. Yes. And so Eva started to do her own writing and really started to do these, these um, diaries in her late teens. It coincided with her beginning um, psychotherapy. May have been connected to that, even though she sort of, you know, she started psychotherapy in her early teens. In her in her mid teens, yeah. I know the group. She may have been in psychotherapy earlier, um, but the journals that we have, there are some letters from when she's 15, 16, but the the, the journals proper are starting in her late teens, um, and uh, and then go on. Uh, with an interesting, there, there are two times when the journaling sort of disappears, and they were both very, very happy times in her life. Mm. So she's journaling, and, uh, and you know, right up until and through her marriage to Tom Doyle, which is in the 1961, and then it kind of drops away because there's a couple of very, very happy years, and then it starts up again uh, right before she goes to Germany for 15 months with Tom, and that was, you know, clearly a a really breakthrough moment, you know, for her. But of course, I, I don't know if you, there's a there's a phrase that I repeat to myself sometimes, which is, your breakdowns, you know, are are, you know, come before your breakthroughs. Right. right. So she went to Germany with Tom Doyle on the invitation of a German industrialist, Arnhild Scheidt. Yes. And really it was her husband, Tom Doyle, that the invitation was 
focused on because he was um, very, you know, he was a well-known uh, sculptor in 19, when, when the invitation came in early, late 63, early 64, Tom, you know, had an, a, a career and Eva was just starting out. You know, she'd had, you know, one, one person show of drawings, um, but not well-known. He was much more well-known. So that invitation came. And of course, the irony of it is of all the places that Tom Doyle and Eva Hesse could have been invited for an artist residency, right? It's going to be Germany. Right, right. So this is a really fraught decision for her. Right. But let, maybe let's go back a little bit. Sure. Um, I want to start with a little bit. First of all, I want, let's just maybe in a few words tell us who was Eva Hess. Well, I like, in other words, Eva Hess was a, a, a German Jewish artist who was born in Hamburg in 1936, which is a really tough place to be born as a, you know, a Jewish baby. And she and her sister came, were one of the, two of the last children out of Germany on a kinder transport, on a children's train. Um, their parents put them on that train two weeks after uh, the, um, uh, the night of Kristallnacht. the Kristallnacht. Thank you. Right. They ended up, the parents got out six months later and were able to get the children who were being housed at a nunnery in the Netherlands, a convent. And they made their way, eventually they made their way to New York. And that was a really tough time to get there and imagine losing, you know, they, they, they came, they were a prominent family in Hamburg and they ended up in New York in Washington Heights, which is, was a large immigrant German. So she grew up in a German immigrant community uh, in northern Manhattan in the 1940s and early 50s. Um, it was a very tough transition. Uh, her mother couldn't there. handle it. Her mother did not. Her mother survived and then didn't survive. So her mother did take her own life when Eva, Eva was 10, just within a couple of days of Eva's 10th birthday, which was obviously an extraordinarily difficult <coughs> experience for her. But Eva Hess was a woman who although in spite of, and even maybe because of, having a very challenging life, okay, she was ambitious, she was joyful, she was extremely intelligent, and she made her way from, you know, this sort of shaky beginning to being in Cooper, graduating from Cooper Union, and then going to Yale. She on started a out. She, she talks about how in the film you show. Mm-hmm. Were those her? By the way, were those her paintings? Those original paintings at Pratt? Didn't she start going to Pratt? Everything is from. Is, That's actually her school uh, yeah. artworks. Yeah. Because um, you know, it's like she went. She goes to. She drops out of high school, right? First. She went to. Well, she finished. She she, she went finished. to the. She went to the High School of Industrial Arts. Okay. She went to Pratt, ju- dropped out of Pratt. Right. Got a job at Seventeen Magazine. Right, exactly. Which was really, and they were the first ones to publish her work. Seventeen Magazine. Wow. S- double double page spread. But she was 16 when she was working mm-hmm. at yeah. Seventeen Magazine. That's right. And um, by the way, you have a wonderful score behind this whole. Thank you. This, very I mean, much. you sort of show that whole, you know, I hate to say it, but it's a sort of Mad Men kind of era sound you know i mean it's... it was very important to us to place this film in the 60s i mean there's some of the film that also takes place 
you know, in the 30s and a little bit in the 50s because we want to show her background. But the majority of the film is the 60s. I mean, Eva Hesse hit New York after Yale at the end of 59, and she passed away in May of 1970. So virtually her entire career was in the 1960s. And that was very important because she's also, when you look at her and you look at the work, it's very contemporary. Yes. You could easily go, oh, this could have been made, you know, last week for right. some, you know, some of that work. It's still so vital. Uh, and clearly there's a lot of artists who um, have been influenced by it. So it's important to us to, yes, to have archival photography, archival footage, as well as, you know, there's a good chunk of our score that is uh, created by our composers, Andreas Schaefer and Raphael Seifried. They are German, and our entire soundtrack was actually um, scored, mixed, and the sound design is out of Germany. We are a German-American co-production. So this was, you know, hands across the water. And we have a German, we had a German production grant, and we did pre-sales for a TV um, uh, version of the film in uh, Germany, France, the Netherlands, and Sweden. Mm. So anyway. And actually Germany, with all the difficult history and yet great history, both, both yes. sides, great yes. history and terrible history, Yes, um, really have embraced her as an artist. Oh, yes. The, there's a, there was a major retrospective that came out of Wiesbaden. Um, and also the Wiesbaden Museum uh, co-produced the two large um, catalog resume volumes uh, that came out in 2002 along with Yale University Press. That show, that big retrospective show, also traveled to the San Francisco Museum of Art, Museum of Contemporary Art, SFMOMA. Um, but yes, the Germans, and uh, we shot a lot of the work that you see in the film at the Hamburger Kunsthalle, um, and they allowed us phenomenal access. Uh, it was very important to us to give, look, she was active for 10 years, but the work that's mostly known is from the last five years of her life. It's scattered all, all over, it's fragile, and not a lot of people get to see it. So we really put a lot of energy and a lot of our resources into lighting and moving the camera and giving people a sense of the beauty and the and and this kind of you know you know interesting translucency of the materials that she used. If you get to see them in person, that's great. But we're hoping that this film is kind of you know, it gives you a sense. As close as you get. Yeah. It's as close as a lot of people are going to get to it. Certainly, right. It's certainly going to give you a, a, mostly a better sense of that work than a, than a f illustration and a, a photograph in a book. Right. Um, but we, again, we, we went to Hamburg and we shot in Hamburg. We shot in Germany um, because we felt it was so important to show where she came from and also the fact that she went back in 1964 and 65 and had her breakthrough. She went from being a painter to being a sculptor during that 15 months in Germany. And um, I wanted to ask you about her circle, the people, yes. your cast, basically, mm -hmm. the people you have in the, uh, which some of the great artists of our time, right? I mean, extraordinary they, experience to sit 
you know, in Richard a room. Sarah, or, you know, you know uh, Nancy Richard Holt. Sarah, Nancy Holt, yeah. who we went and... What was her relation? What was Nancy Holt? Nancy Holt was the wife, people know her as the wife of Smithson, Robert Smithson. She was that, but she was but, also so, very a important. sculptor in her own right. Uh, mostly land art, but yes, yeah, sculptor, photographer, filmmaker. Um, she was a really terrific artist, and even though um, back in the late 60s, so, so when we talked to Nancy, she talked a lot about the community and the fact that in the mid-60s, so Nancy, her husband Bob Smithson, Lucy Lepard, who was then married to Bob Ryman, um, Saul LeWitt, Carl Andre, they're all living in this, you know, few blocks radius. Right, and Carl, I think Carl Andre still lives there, right? Um, he lives. In, he lives. Well, he lives on Mercer Street, so he's yeah. he's in a big he's in a tower. So he, yeah. I don't think he was living in that tower in the mid '60s, but yes, he does. That live. same neighborhood. I mean, it's yeah, it's downtown. But he's more he's kind of living in the more like the West Village. This is like this is where they were living at that time. Uh, Eva's on the Bowery. This is this is this right. is really. It's industrial, right? Hardcore. hardcore industrial. Right. There's, you know, it's nothing. They didn't even call it Tribeca then, right? Or that the no, lower side. This yeah. is this was really you're, you're stepping over. I mean, Eva was like maybe just five feet tall, maybe five one. She was a tiny little woman, right. and she's living on the Bowery, stepping over, you know, drunks to get home <laughs> at night, you know, yeah. living on in a, a literal a garret. In a building that was that was uh, built in 1798. Right, probably no heat, right? Or, I mean, who knows? They put. I know they put in when she moved. She moved in there with her husband Tom Doyle, but right. right before they went to Germany. But these were rough, these were rough in, studios. They, People, did, they didn't have water. They had to put in plumbing. Wow. Yeah. So these were not the lofts that one thinks of now. Right. These were. So they were all down there living. And then in terms of Nancy Holt and Smithson and and, and Mel Bachner. They went out. Nancy said they'd go out to dinner four, five, you know, three, four nights a week together. They'd go over and you know get some you know three dollar meal in the east, you know, East Village, and they would sit all night and talk about art. Yeah. And she said, especially in nineteen when Eva's marriage broke up at the end of '65, that's when she really started spending a lot of time with what we would consider the minimalists and conceptualists. Um, and Nancy Holt was absolutely part of the conversation. And they were all, they all yeah. knew each other. They were all, you know, they were that, that community of artists who were, you know, living downtown. Um, I, I think Richard Sarah went to Yale too, right? And Richard Sarah came a little later because he didn't he's finish Yale. He was a little bit younger. Right. He came later. Um, he uh, doesn't really take part in those early conversations in 66. He's not coming to New York, I think, until a little bit later. And then he... And Hesse traded studio visits, and you know, were in that great show at the Castelli Warehouse in '69, and then in the in the Whitney show. Um, so he's in a little bit later. But Nancy Holt, um, again, is part of that group with Saul Witt, who unfortunately passed away before yeah, we ago, did yeah. the film. Right. We have him. He's a sort of a major, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now, character in the documentary yeah. and we were very fortunate that he did give an interview uh to michael blackwood when we he was you know uh michael blackwood did a film called four artists in which uh hessa is there's about a 
12 to 15 minute section about how stuff came out about 30, 25, 30 years ago. And Solowit was interviewed for that. Um, and he also, you know, he also did other interviews, audio interviews. So we pulled from that. So, so Saul is in the film. I mean, people talk about every Eva considered Saul a best friend. Bob Mangold considered Saul a best friend. Right. Carl Andre considered Saul. I mean, Saul was really the center of the community that we're talking about. And, you know, the art world, I mean, Irving Blum talks about that the art world in that time was about 100 people. It wasn't a big, it's like people think of it now, we have 10,000 MFAs coming out. I mean, I, it's a different world. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's so many artists, so many galleries, so many. This was like, you know, New York. I mean, you think of New York, it's a, you know, big city, but, you know, it wasn't such a big art scene. And there was not a lot of, there was no money. I mean, right. Richard Serra during, you know, he talked, we talked to him a lot about community, and he said, there were no collectors. He said, we were making art for each other. Right, right. So the idea of having actors do the voice, I mean, the way you structured it, I want to talk oh, a little sure. bit about that. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that, I mean, you, because, you know, the fact that you were able to have her voice, um, even though she's no longer with us, obviously, um, you know, that whole way you went about doing that, how, how did that well, come about? my producing partner, Karen Shapiro, and I, um, part of a very early conversation when we decided to do a documentary and by the way it was originally Karen so Karen's a theater producer as well as a film producer mm -hmm. and the original idea was you know you had mentioned that I had written a was a very personal you know play uh, theatrical piece um, called Meditations Eva Hess in uh, 2010 she came to see that which you know Karen doesn't have a background in art she's background in theater so she came to see this um, play and she said oh I think the play is wonderful. Let's let's see if we can do it at a bigger venue, another venue. Let's do a longer run. At that point was when I said, well, I think maybe I need to go talk to the estate because I just wrote that play based on my experience of Eva's journals. Mm. I'd made a conscious decision not to meet the people that Eva knew. I just, it was in relationship with that writing. And my own, you know, it's very highly theatrical and three actresses play Eva at different times of her life. It's not documentary at right, all. Right, right. Much more, you know, engaged with my interest, which was the relationship of creativity and mortality and exploring that in that play. But anyway, the play got done. We would thought we'd maybe take it to a bigger place. And so at that point, I said, well, I think I need to get the estate involved or at least let them know and you know get it get get an okay from them. Sure. And but I didn't want to just show up on their doorstep, Helen's doorstep, and say, oh, by the way, I already wrote this. Is it okay? So I thought I'll get to know her and I'll get to meet them uh, and get them to know me a little, and then I'll tell them about the play. So I wrote a grant and I got a grant from the Samsung Corporation through when I was teaching at Art Center, and this grant was to do audio interviews with the, what I call the Hesse Intimates. Mm. And so these five audio interviews that I did, and this was in 20, 2011. So Lucy Lepard was number right, one. Right. Helen Hesse Cherish, Tom Doyle, Eva's husband, Joya Timpanelli, who was a very well, good- the end of the film, right? She is, Joya is sort of sprinkled, yes, Joya was a good friend of Eva's closer to the end of her life, and she still lives in Woodstock, and Eva lived with Joya 
for the summer after she had her first operation, and that's where she did the window drawings in this little cabin in Woodstock. And then finally, Doug Johns. Doug Johns was Eva's studio assistant, 1968-69, and he's ended up Here at the end of a dirt road in Topanga Canyon. Right, right. So in the middle of doing those audio interviews, well, the experience of meeting all these people was a really profound experience for me. And I was like, oh, these people have led such amazing lives. They're so engaged. There was, there's such a great story here. And these, and why am I here with an audio? I should right, be here right. with a, I, I, with a you camera, know, right. I should be here with a video camera just, right. just to capture this. Right. Um, and of course, Lucy Lepard was, was, uh, was a really, she planted the seed, I'll have to say, when I went and visited her in New Mexico in 2011. Um, you know, she talked about, you know, this, the, her community, and she talked about all of her friends in a way that was really captivated me. And then once I met her and I met Helen and I met Tom, I said, it was one of these sort of things that just comes to you. It was like I sat up in bed and I said, one morning, and I went, I think this is a documentary. Yeah. And I have to tell you, I've never worked on it. Not, not only right. have I never directed a documentary, my background in film is as an art director and a storyboard artist. So I had never worked on a documentary. Right. But I was like, But this that helped you, didn't it? Oh, it helped me. Oh, sorry. It Structure looks, the film. Because it looks to me like, I mean, very few artists have this kind of film. Even great artists. You know, I mean, there, there are films by Jasper Johns. You have him walking around a show. You don't have all these people talking about him. You don't have his voice expressed. You know what I mean? It's like there's, there's so little of this kind of documentation for most even important artists. I mean, more, you know, as important as Eva. You know what I mean? Well, it really, it comes from her work that she left behind. A lot of artists leave work behind. You know, they, they leave work behind, which is engaging. But it was really the week that I spent at Oberlin reading those journals. And the, and the story. Letters. And the story. Her story was amazing, too. Her art was amazing, but her story was amazing. Her story, but it's really her voice. Yes. Her voice. I don't think this film would have been possible without her, you know, it's not just her voice that, you know, there is one audio recording that, uh, an interview that Cindy Nemser did mm -hmm. in 1970, but it's the voice that comes through her writing. She was a really good writer. And by the way, something sort of interesting is happening in May, which is that those hundreds and hundreds of pages of unpublished journals are being published oh, by Yale University Press. Wow. So that project's been going on for many, many years, and our project's been going on for four and a half years. And it just so happens that our film premieres in New York within two weeks of the journals being published by Yale University Press. So what do you think um, brought about uh, this sort of, after her death, was, was the work um, shown for a while? Or did it disappear for a while? Or was there, and when was the big show start? Happen. I mean, well, I think that the I think a lot a lot of Hesse scholars would probably point to the 1992 retrospective at Yale as being sort of the beginning of a new chapter of Hesse's work being um, looked at again and being written about uh, in a new way. 
Okay, when you when I in the end of the film when you show have a little bit of that interview and you hear her own voice. By the way, very breathy. It sounds like Jackie Kennedy or something. Women don't talk like that now. You know, it's a different. But uh, also remember, she was quite ill. Oh, really? Because it was. It sounded like very like sort of whispery. You know, kind of sound. You know. Of, of, so of, people who knew Eva say she, that the that the voice that you hear, excuse me, on that recording is not the voice that they remember, th- excuse me, throughout her life, because again, it was done in early 1970, and uh, and she was um, not uh, completely, you know, she was not healthy. Right. So it did affect her voice a bit. Um, we decided early on that there would be no traditional narration, that Eva would narrate the film. Yeah. And so what that meant is an extraordinarily long and very, very interesting process where you take, I think I must have had 1,200 pages of writing and whittling it down. Uh, it's her writing and it's also the transcript of the Cindy Nemzer interview. Those are the, the two main places that we pulled the narration from. Who is Cindy Nemzer? Cindy Nemzer. Uh, is uh, someone who has been writing about art since the 19, uh, late 60s, early 70s. She ran a publication, I believe it was called the Feminist Art Journal, oh. and she wrote a book about women in the art. The interview that was done, that she did with Eva Hess in the beginning of 1970, was meant to be part of, and was part of a book of interviews of female artists. Which was published because she's di- she's dying at this point, right? I mean, it's the end of her life. Yes, when I mean, when she, Eva she, was interviewed, she was she was like it, it was pretty much the last year. It was year, four right? oh, it was four months, really four, four months before she died. And she pretty much tells her story, and then she does. Yes, she tells that whole story. I mean, the fact that she she was she had the presence of mind to say, "Look, I'm going to tell my story now." Mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty amazing, really. Well, and there are other there was not only there, there were there, there are some extraordinary papers that she left behind. Um, seven pages in particular that were published in Art Forum. I can't remember, give, remember the exact year, but these were writings where she talks about her own mortality and accepting the fact that death is coming and being okay with it. Mm. You know. And by the way, she worked until the end. The right. last piece that that she did, the last major piece that she did, Seven Poles, which was shown in a, in a three-person show called Trio um, at uh, a gallery um, in New York in 1970. She made the maquette and the drawings for that from her hospital bed mm-hmm. and then had um, uh, assistants uh, go ahead and actually, um, you know, do the fiberglass work. It's a major, it's a major piece. Um, very, very large, very ambitious. And again, that's, that's part of what, I think it's part of why people have really um, engaged with Hesse and with her story and with the work. We just had uh, a, the film had a pre- DC premiere two weeks ago at the National Gallery, 
and we had a full house and we had a really engaged Q&A afterwards. And you, you, can, you, you can feel it from, from how they're responding to it that the story and Eva's own words, and again, that's why we didn't want a traditional narration. We're like, we've got everything we need and what Eva left behind. Right. And it was just really a matter of, you know, uh, sensitively editing them and, you know, placing them within this context and letting people see and letting people hear um, a life that was a life that was lived with, you know, courage and self-awareness. She didn't go, so many people we spoke to who knew her, their lives were deeply, in, you know, altered and moved by having been her friend. And even, she's been gone now over 45 years. I can't tell you how many people we interviewed who um, we were weeping wow. during, you know, it's not like, you know, we didn't use that. Right. In the film, because right. it's not about that. It's about what, you know, she accomplished and what her... But still, people were moved by that. And of course, also, you know, one thing that um, Bob Mangold and Sylvia Mangold said to us is that Eva, having died at 34, of that group of people, she was the first young person, first person of their age that they knew who had passed on. So that was also, you know, very a very moving experience for, for people and going, whoa, you know. We but don't she had a brain tumor and then she had surgery for the brain tumor and then she goes back to her studio and finishes up a, oh. whole body, a body of work oh. um, and probably her best body of work. I mean, I mean arguably, or, or some it, of her most important work, most ambitious work. It's very ambitious, yes. The first surgery they thought was that was it. That They took care of it, they got it all, I've got to recover and you know, she really felt coming out of that surgery that it was a pretty much a clean bill of health and she was going to move forward and she did an extraordinary amount of work in the last year of her life. By the time the second surgery came, um, that kind of, you know, that was a great disappointment and really knocked her back, but she still kept working. And then after the, the third surgery, she didn't really recover from Oh, she had three surgeries? She yeah. had the third, yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And, of course, that was in May of 1970. Yeah, that's pretty... That's the You're going to have month. brain surgery in 1970 also. Yeah, and that's month. the month that, that her work contingent was on the cover of Art Forum. Right. I want to talk a little bit, you know, sort of going back again, a little bit about um, her her marriage and her, you know, how that changed her as an artist. And, sure. Um, I mean, basically, how she started out almost like, um, I guess Lucy Lepard says she's almost like a surrealist kind of painter. I mean, the, just basically, when she went to Germany, she arrives in Germany because he's on, he has a grant. Well, they brought them, yeah, they, they had a residency and everything was paid for. They got, they both, you know, they had a big studio. Um, and of course, Art, you know, Scheidt saw her work as well. At that point, when she went to Germany, she had not been working in three dimensions at all. She had been, she was a painter, and she was doing really interesting paintings. Um, but as Lucy Lepard said, you know, they were interesting, but they weren't, you know, the, they weren't it yet. She was still, you know, a, an artist in her 20s, coming into understanding what, you know, 
You know, you could see there's this, you know, she was really interested in abstract expressionism, but she was also interested in pop art, and she was doing these interesting colors and forms. And they're certainly, you know, and they're, and they're ambitious paintings. Right. And the paintings she was doing, you know, at that time were, you know, three, five feet by seven feet. I mean, they were big, interesting compositions, as well as extraordinary drawings. She could always draw really well. Um, but it was that time, and also she married a sculptor. She married an artist who was almost a decade older than she was, who oh, already yeah. had a developed career. Right. And quite frankly, Tom Doyle, he was more of a 50s guy. Right. And he was expecting a wife who would, you know, be a little more of a, maybe a 50s wife. Right. And she was a real 60s girl. Right. And so there was certainly, I think, some tension. I mean, again, given those those journals and her writing in the journals, there was tension between, you know, the amount of time he spent with his work and the amount of time she spent with her work and who was going to do the housekeeping and who was going to do the cooking. And, you know, she wanted... And he was a bit of a bad boy, too, right? He was a... It's a bit of a. He's no, I mean, charismatic. I'm thinking. I'm thinking hard you know, drinking, hard living. Right, right. You know, really smart, hard working. But yes, there was. But he had a successful art. I mean, at the time, he was successful. Absolutely. Uh, no, I mean, I was thinking that at the point where you talk about, he talks about when he first met her, when he first, you know, the first time they met. Yeah. Um, and it's like at a party, and he had been uh, in a fight, and he was sitting with blood all over his face from. Punching somebody, and she—that's—that's. That's, she looks at him. She goes, "That's the guy for me." You know what I mean? What I'm saying is, like, she was very attracted to that. That kind of, don't you think? I mean, well, he was one good-looking fellow. Right. Even I met him, you know, in his early 80s, and he right. still had the charm, the charisma. Right. Um, but her family didn't like it. I mean, he, he, she well, was it's not she, Jewish. She wasn't Jewish, and so he converted. That's a great scene, actually. I mean, yes, he talks about he how he took, did. had a bar mitzvah and the whole thing. And you know what? He was also <laughs> he was a very. It's not just his bad boy. He was a voracious reader. He was um, uh, sort of a. I'm not sure if I can call him a scholar of the Civil War, but you know, he oh, yeah. really knew. Yes, he he was a very thoughtful. Very serious, very serious about art and very serious about um, literature. And both of them were big readers and both of them were quite engaged. And, and they were happy for a while, right? Absolutely. They, they were, were happy they for were a while. They were very happy in the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then uh, it, it didn't work out. The, the marriage uh, lasted in, from 1961 to, to the end of 1965. And then she comes back, she's a sculptor. In Germany, she is having some uh, issues. She's having, you know, she's trying things and then they're not working out and she's, you know, she's struggling through to find her way. And during that time, she's writing back and forth and to Saul LeWitt and there's a quite a very well-known letter that Saul writes her in 65, which basically says, just do it. Maybe he doesn't use the word just because that's a Nike thing, but you know it's a five-page letter, and th- at least three times he draws the words "do it" in, in like like a like a sketch, and then with with you know lines all around it, and he just encourages her to stop thinking, stop screwing around, stop questioning herself, do it, right? You know, believe in yourself, right? And it came at a very interesting time because she had just started working in three dimensions. So, so the transitionary work, transitional work, were reliefs, which were you know fairly 
modest size where she begins to pick up bits of rope and wood and from the floor of the factory that she's working in. And she starts to methodically work them into the paintings. So the paintings now are not only coming off that rectangular frame, but they're also sort of scooting out and coming forward and going off the sides. And she's having fun. And the colors of them are weird and acidic. And it doesn't look like anything else. So that's the body of work she makes right before she comes back to New York. And she never looks back. I mean, she certainly continues to paint on paper and draw on paper throughout her life. She has an extraordinary body of that work. But when she gets back to New York, she starts taking the rope and metal. She starts using balloons. She's using paper mache. And she starts making these objects, which are influenced by minimalism, but also her own thing. They're organic as well. They engage with the grid, but they also really destroy the grid. And so that's that big body of work that a lot of people know from 66. And it's 1966 where she starts getting into major group shows in New York. She never wanted to be thought of as a woman artist. But Lucy Lepard talks about how this is kind of the beginning of feminist art. In retrospect, you could certainly see, because Eva may not have used that term, but she was reading Simone de Beauvoir. And she was very conscious of her position as a woman among men. And didn't want to be corralled into this art made by women. It was, I think a very well-known quote from her is, the way to beat discrimination in art is by art. Excellence has no sex. Maybe today we would say excellence has no gender. But that was her position. But it doesn't mean that she didn't, that she wasn't aware. And Lucy feels that if she had, certainly if she had survived the 70s, that she would have had another conversation about feminist art. But I mean, they weren't even talking about feminism really in the 60s. But it was something she was aware of and something that was very important for her to be, I'm a woman, I'm not a woman, it's good art. Then she starts making these pieces in Staten Island with this, can you tell that story a little bit? The story of her work with fiberglass. So in 1967, Hesse decided to expand her art making and begin to work with factories. By the way, that was new to artists, period. The idea that art, now it's, every artist does that. That's right. But at the time, getting fabricators was a new, I shouldn't say that, I'm sure that Rodin had people helping him make 
you know, bronzes or whatever, but I mean, contemporary artists make, using fabricators. It was, um, I believe it was um, Bob Smithson who took her over to Arco Metals, and that was her first fabricator collaboration. Then she decided to start using fiberglass, and then she was introduced to a group that was working out of Staten Island and was working with a lot of artists called Aegis. And who were they working with? Um, they were working with Bob Morris. Mostly um, sculptors. They were working with sculptors, yeah. Right. They were working with sculptors. And so she met Doug Johns right. out at Aegis. Right. And they started working together. She knew that she had a show. She was she she had been offered a show at Fishbach Gallery by Donald Droll. Mm. And so she was creating work for specifically for that show, which was going to be in November '68. And he was a very important um, curator. I mean, he was a director, right, of Fishbach. The Gallery? director of Marilyn Fishbach's Gallery. Right. And they took Hesse had shown a couple of pieces there in 1966 with a Lucy Lepard curated show called Eccentric Abstraction. Droll took her on for the gallery, I believe the next, the following year, and said, okay, you know, I think you're going to be ready next year for a one-person show. So going out to Staten Island and working with Doug Johns, that was specifically to create work for this show that she knew was coming up in November. So in the summertime, she meets... Doug Johns, they create Repetition 19 out it in there. She loves the way that it comes, comes out. And then Doug assists her in creating a number of the other pieces for that show in, in November. So that's how she came to... And I mean, continued to the rest of her life to work with her? And... For mo mostly. She had other assistants as well. Really? But okay. he was certainly a technical advisor. You know, she made all the work. Um, he was an, an advisor and certainly supported her in making the work. But he's also very clear about she's the artist. Right. You know, right. this is not a collaboration in no, that no, way. No, not at all. But he was he, a fabricator. He was a fabricator. Right. She did, all, she did the drawings. She did the mock-ups, you know, and he was the one who he had a lot of technical knowledge. First of all, where, what's going to happen with the film now? What's the, what's the, what, where is it going to be showing? What, you know, what, what's... Well, the film has really... So the, the theatrical opening will be in New York on April 27th at Film Forum. And uh, those of you who are in New York, we really encourage you to go out and see it the first week because that'll help it stay out there longer. It's a minimum two-week run at Film Forum, but first week is super important in terms of other theaters understanding that this is a story that people want to see. We then open in Los Angeles on May 13th, and we what, have... What were you show? Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Uh, we work in Los Angeles. <laughs> Um, at the Lemley Theater in, in Santa Monica, oh, so at the New Monica. Wonderful. And that will be a minimum one-week run. Um, and again, go see it that first week, and uh, Greg Lemley will be happy to extend it. We also have runs. We're going to be in Santa Fe, uh, Cleveland, San Francisco. We'll be in Boston on uh, the 5th of May. We've got... Quite frankly, all over the country, we're getting bookings. So the best way to find out where it's going to be near you 
if you're not in Los Angeles and New York, is to go to the screenings page on our website, which is www.evahessadoc.com. And there's a screenings page. You can also see our trailer. Our trailer was released today, by the way. Wonderful. So we have a really fun trailer that's out there on iTunes and our, on our website. And you can go and uh, get a little flavor um, for what the film is going to be. But we're, we're being booked all over the country. We've also got bookings coming up um, in Germany. that will open theatrically in Germany, starting with the German premiere, which will be the final day of Art Cologne on April 17th. Uh, and then it will open all over Germany as well. And we're getting, we're getting inquiries from all over the world. So I guess, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a project that the time has come. It's a story that time has come. And we're just so happy um, that we got to do this. It's so wonderful. Just to finish up, I just wanted to go a little bit into your crew and to talk a little bit about the Thank people you. who worked on the film. Absolutely. Your, your cinematographer, your, your, uh, your editor, you know, the, the, uh, who, who are they? Who are they? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because we're at a time right now in the film business where there's a lot of focus being put on women in film. Now, we didn't start out to say we're going to have to have a you know mostly female crew but it just so happens that the two of you myself yeah myself and my producing partner Karen Shapiro our cinematographer is Nancy Schreiber our editor is Azeen Samari both of them are extraordinary talents so tell and, us who is Nancy Schreiber who, who oh so her. Nancy Schreiber is a union cinematographer um, who's been working uh in documentary and in feature narratives for many years and has a great history and interest in art. Um, shot William de Kooning in his studio years ago. And frankly, when we started this film, we were thinking that it was gonna be a little more modest in terms of what we could do. And I knew Nancy from years before, and I contacted her just to ask her if she could, you know, recommend someone. As soon as she heard it was Eva Hess, she said, I'm, I'm on board. Wow. I'm not going to recommend it. I want to do it. She said, but what you have to promise me is you will raise enough funding so we can use great cameras, we can have a full crew. You should have a film run video. We shot it on... Uh, 2K video. So these were with high because of, because of Nancy's connection. She brought in Sony, mm. as uh, you know. Sony gave us amazing equipment. Um, some of it, you know, in kind, and some of it, you know, that we, you know, rented. But we had top of the line equipment. And it's very high production. I mean, amazing production values on this thing. My co-producer Karen Shapiro said, "Marcy, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right." And Eva Hess deserves, if we're going to shoot artwork, we're going to do this at a theatrical level. Now, quite frankly, it's not easy to get theatrical distribution for an arts documentary in this country. But we, that was always our intention. Right. And so we did shoot it thinking, this image has got to hold up 50 feet across, 100 feet across, whatever it is. Um, and so when we 
raise the funding. But it's a completely independent. We have no movie studio behind us. We raise the funding, Karen and I, bit by bit. And then having our German co-producer, Michael Aust of Televisor Troika Films involved, allowed us to go to the German government and get a German production grant and also to do our pre-sales in Europe. So all of that allowed us to create a film at the quality where we could go to people and say, this is going to hold up at the National Gallery. It's going to hold up in any theater that you project it at. Eventually, people will be able to watch it on their computers and their iPhones. But Zeitgeist Films out of New York has been doing this for quite a long time, and they are committed to the theatrical experience of film. And so we knew that they were, you know, from early on, you know, it takes a while to, you know, you know, go ahead and negotiate your contract. But we knew from the get-go that these were going to be the perfect distributors for this film in America because their relationships with independent art houses and festivals and museums is without parallel. And this is a film that we did not want going straight to streaming. We right. really want, because it's a film about art, it's a film about community, and that's how we wanted people to experience it. So the fact that we're getting bookings all over the country is so exciting for us because people are going to see it in the way that we made it, you know, and so what, in a, with our intention. Um, and then one last thing, a couple of things. One is your editor. I wanted to ask you about Okay, editor. Azim Samari. Amazing editor. Her previous films include Love, Marilyn. So great. That was a great film. Super film. Yeah. Ethel. Yeah. With Rory Kennedy. Right. And the September issue. Oh, that's great too. Yes. Yeah. So she came to us having done, you know, this suite of documentaries about extraordinary women. Yeah. So again, when we met Azine, we got along great in the room. And of course, looking at her work, it was like, ugh. Nancy Schreiber, perfect person to shoot it, has all this experience with art. And then Azine Samari, perfect, you know, again, just great fit, knows how to tell a woman's story. Huge, this woman has such a huge heart and such a great, I mean, the editing in this it's film is so beautiful. We worked really closely together. And, but these, you know, two women were such extraordinary partners in, in bringing the film together. Also, I do want to mention... Kia Simon, um, who is our uh, motion graphics designer. What was the story with these cartoons? Like you, you show like dream sequences. Yeah. What is that? Tell me who. How, okay. How, tell me the backstory on that. So there, there are two animated sequences in the film, short animated sequences, and the reason that they're there is in Hess's writing. She wrote about her dreams all the time. It was clearly a very important part of her life, her psychic life and her um, the way she understood her world. And we wanted to express that. And so we decided to do just two short animated sequences where Selma Blair, who's the voice of Hessa, Again, Selma Blair does an extraordinary vocal performance. It's not, I think it's, we worked really closely together. It's not an overblown kind of acting, but it's also more than simply a reading. Right. 
And so we have her reading Hesse's dreams from the journals. And I created... Talking her word throughout. She does. She does. But I kind of want to make a distinction just to sort of so people will understand. It's not like the whole film is, you know, filled with... There are a lot of other people talking. And of course, we also have an actor, Patrick Kennedy, reading from Saul Witt's letters so that we focus on that back and forth in 1965 between the two of them. And also we thought it was important to have some of the letters and the journals of Eva's father read. So Bob Balaban voices Eva's dad. But, you know, kind of back to... Tell me your question again. The cartoons. The cartoons. Okay. Or cartoons. Are they cartoons? I made the wrong word for them. Maybe. They're... What are they? They're illustrated. They are sort of... Well, they come from... They're certainly... They're drawings. They're animated drawings. They're animated drawings. They're somewhere between, I would say, a cartoon because they're not... Yes, a cartoon is the wrong word. Animated drawings. It's an animated drawing. It's somewhere between... You know, it's what we call an animatic. Okay. So an animatic is like a storyboard in motion. And so my background as an artist... Are they your drawings? Yes, and. I worked with the very first pass on them. So I did storyboards, you know, drawn storyboards for the animated sequences. Those were then put into motion by our motion graphics designer who also worked with an illustrator. So then some of those illustrations, which I found, you know, were sent back to me and I kind of put my hand on top of them and then sent back. So it was this experience of my drawing and then putting into motion and then another illustrator working on it and then back to me. So it was a real collaboration to get where we got. So great. And in the end, did you have... I just want to finish up with talking about her sister again, to sort of wrap it up. How did you work with her throughout this whole process? So in order to do a project at this scale, it was important for us to work directly with the estate. And so when I sort of had this idea to do a documentary, I called up Karen Shapiro, who was kind of thinking to produce the play that I had written, and I said, Karen, I have another idea. And she said, you want to make a documentary, don't you? I said, how do you know that? She said, I saw it in my meditation this morning. But you were going to call me and tell me that. And if you want to do that, I'll produce it. So from the first day, from the first concept, Karen was on board. But then we had to go to Helen and say, okay. Because you need rights, right? Yeah, well, yeah, we wouldn't. You couldn't do it. I mean, you wouldn't have access. Right, right. So I called Helen, who I had already, I had gone to do the audio interview with Helen. It was going to be 45 minutes. We spent three and a half hours together. So Helen and I had gotten along really well, and we just had a great conversation. So I called her up the following week and said, now I have another idea. Um, But someone must have, I couldn't believe no one, quite frankly, no one had done it already. Right. And I said, Helen, is there a documentary out there about your sister? Because 
I can't find it. Is it out of print? And she said, Marcy, someone came to me a few years ago and asked about it, but then never came back. I said, well, how about if we try to do that? And she said, yes. Wow. Go for it. Try to do that. And so within six weeks, we had a, you know, I kind of went into my kind of, you know, writer's room. And within six weeks, we had a full proposal that we showed the estate. And the estate said, this sounds good. And we raised a little seed money. And we shot. You must be thrilled, right? Huh? Oh, they're very happy. (laughs) They're very happy. Because we also kept, that wasn't the last time, you know, they did not have, you know, um, we have a, we have we have a uh, an agreement with the estate. Um, they have been extraordinarily helpful in terms of giving us access to the materials that they still have, and also introducing us um, to organizations and individuals who had other materials. Because that's the other piece that there's not very much footage of Eva. There's almost not, very very little. Yeah. And so we made. 148 minute film. Right. We made a you know a feature film, and so we also were able to track down archives of footage as well as um, letters and stills that I mean the the estate had never seen. It's amazing. So we were able you know everyone that we met who knew Eva. I basically asked the same question. Did you have a camera? Do you have any, you know, do you have anything in your closet? And there's a lot of good, I know we're kind of running out of time, but there are a lot of good stories about people going into their closets and finding things that they gave to us. Wonderful. Yes, wonderful, wonderful. And people who knew Eva, quite frankly, they knew that we were, you know, making this independently um, and raising funds for an arts documentary, you know, of this scale. Not the easiest thing. And the people who knew Eva have been extraordinarily generous in terms of just handing things over and saying, you know, go for it. So great. You know, we had, a, you know, there, of course, there's a lot of material in the film that we had to pay extraordinary rights for. You know, we had to raise, you know, it, it ended up being much more costly. And quite frankly, we're still, you know, raising a little bit of money for these final costs that, you know, we you know, did not anticipate, um, but there are certainly some, we, we felt it was so important to give the feeling of the 60s that we ended up, you know, having, you know, s- certain um, unavoidable costs in terms of, uh, you know, archival footage yes. and that are, is general, but, you know, we have this beautiful archival footage of the exterior of the Guggenheim um, where she uh, had the first retrospective that was worked on by Linda Shearer in 1972, the whole Guggenheim. Wow. Amazing. Anyway, thank you so much. Um, it's a wonderful film, and I hope our audience runs and goes see it. Goes see it. it, it it's, congratulations. It's thank you film. so much. And those of you, um, those, those of your audience who are, gonna, are listening and who are, uh, in New York and Los Angeles, as well as we're going to be doing Q and A's in both cities, multiple Q and A's on the opening weekend. So again, in New York, that's April, uh, the weekend, it, it opens April 27th, but Karen and I will be in New York and we'll be at Q and A's, um, on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We're also going to be, I don't have the dates yet, but we're also going to do Q and A's in 
Los Angeles and at the ICA in Boston on May 5th. And when we open in Santa Fe, we're going to go to San Francisco. So we're really, I'm going to be leaving town at the end of March and I don't get back till the middle of May. So it's great that so many of the venues that are playing the film are bringing us out so that we can talk to the audience about what our experience has been in making the film. Thank you and congratulations. Thank you so much, Ruby. It's been just such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you.